0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. So in December of 2013, a 90-year-old man named Ed laid in the hospital. And every day during his time in the hospital, his friend Bill would come and visit him every day. Now, these two had been friends for a long time, and they were actually born uh, just 18 days apart and just a few blocks apart in South Philadelphia. But it would be over two decades before they would actually meet, and they would have to travel thousands of miles to do this because Bill and Ed did not meet each other in South Philly. They met each other in Northern Europe in the theater of war during World War II. And they were part of a a baton of, of paratroopers. A paratrooper is known as the 101st or the Easy Company. And this is where these two men met one another in war in a company that uh, held out at the Battle of the Bulge. A company of men that dropped in behind enemy lines on D-Day. A company of men that liberated concentration camps and even stormed one of Hitler's strongholds, the Eagle's, the Eagle's Nest. And this is where Bill and Ed met one another. And so they met one another. You may know them if you've seen the, the movie or the miniseries or read the book, you may know them better as Ed Babe Heffron and Wild Bill Garnier. And so they met one another in war and they, they formed this friendship in World War II as they were putting their lives on the line for one another, as they were dropping out of planes with each other and sleeping in foxholes next to each other. Here's what Stephen Ambrose wrote about these men in his book, Band of Brothers. He said the result of these shared experiences was a closeness unknown to all outsiders. Comrades are closer than friends, closer than brothers. Their relationship is different from that of lovers. Their trust in and knowledge of each other is total. And so after the war, we get back to these two men. They reconnect in South Philadelphia. And they begin to see each other daily in South Philadelphia. They begin to have children, and their children call one another uncles, and they're like fathers to the other's kid. And so then we get back to this hospital bed 90 years later, and here's Wild Bill and Babe with each other in the hospital. And Wild Bill passes away, and then 14 weeks later, or I'm sorry, Ed passes away, and then 14 weeks later, Bill passes away. It's a relationship that they had for life that was formed during the chaos of war. And it's a relationship that I think many of us, we can't understand something to that level because we've rarely been in those positions where we have to put our life on the line for someone else and we know that someone else might do the same for us. But I talk about that story, I talk about those men because I think we get a picture of a relationship like that in our story this morning when we talk about David and the friendship he has with Jonathan. It's a friendship that I don't know if we can come close to really understanding. And so we're going to try and unpack it some today. But if you'll look with me, we're going to start out in 1 Samuel in chapter 17. And here's what happens. Uh, If you were with us last week, we talked about the story that most of us know. We heard it in Bible school of David and Goliath. And Matt did a great job depicting that story to us. And David and Goliath ends with a spot that we rarely share though in Bible school, which I think is misfortunate. I mean, we're trying to kind of tell it to kids, but at the end of David and Goliath, David walks over to Goliath, who's down, like hit him in the slingshot, right? Goliath's dead on the floor. And David goes, he's taking no chances, pulls out Goliath's sword, and then chops off Goliath's head. And that is where our story picks up this morning. You excited, right? That's exciting. So it says right here, 1 Samuel 17. Uh, 17, we'll start in verse 57. It says, as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, who was the king, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So Jonathan looks at this young shepherd David and he is impressed. Because if you'll notice, David just, handed them their biggest problem, right? Like David walks into the room, they've been stalled out in their battles against the Philistines for days, weeks, months, we don't know how long. And then David just strolls in with that problem, their biggest problem in his hand and he drops it on the table and Jonathan's like, that's my boy, right? Like it is the ultimate mic drop and David doesn't say like when they ask him like, who are you? He's not like, I am the mighty David, I have slain giants. He's just like, I'm the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, boop. And then he goes on and everybody's like, what? And here's why I think Jonathan really like, connects with this, because this is the same type of thing that Jonathan would do. If we go back a couple of chapters, we're gonna kind of flash back and forth here, but if we go back a couple of chapters, you have to remember that Jonathan has been fighting the same battle against the Philistines. And now he's seen David put his life on the line to save Israel. And so in First Samuel 14, we see the Israelites are fighting the Philistines and they're kind of in this like this hold off against each other. And the Philistines have camped out in this field that's really rocky with like a lot of dips and, and stuff like that. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer in First Samuel fourteen six, he says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so Jonathan with his armor bearer, they sneak over to this area. And you can read the whole story later on, but the enemy sees them, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they pop up and the enemy sees them and they say, ah, the Hebrews are jumping out of holes, like they're hiding everywhere. And so then Jonathan starts fighting them. He slaughters like 20 of them and panic ensues among their enemy. And they just start saying, run away, run away. And the Philistines are gone. And meanwhile, Saul has been camped out in caves and he's looking around and he sees all the Philistines running. He's like, who are we missing? He does a head count the person who is missing is Jonathan. So Jonathan, just like David, single-handedly went against his enemy. So then when David strolls in and just does again, the ultimate mic drop, Jonathan is like, that's my boy. I will follow this guy wherever he is going. That's the kind of person I wanna hang out with because they would have understood one another because they had a similar mindset and they'd fought in battle. Both of them had fought in the same battles. And so as we get back to this, we get to this idea that Jonathan is ready to give up for David. So let's just read a little bit further. Let's read in uh, 1 Samuel uh, 18, two through four. It says that Saul took him David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. He gives his royal attire to this shepherd. Which, let me mention, it is royal because if you didn't know it before, Jonathan is the son of Saul, who is king. And now Saul, who had promised to the one that could defeat Goliath, he's going to give him riches and all these things. We don't read about him giving anything to David. He's even promised a daughter, and then that daughter is given to somebody else in marriage. And it gets real sticky there. But here's what we see is that we have Jonathan who's decided he's going to unite himself to David. And yet, Jonathan is the son of the king. David walks in acting like a king when Jonathan's father had not been acting like a king and Jonathan decides to throw in with David, which would mean that Jonathan would not be king. Do you see how good this is? Like if we were watching this on like Netflix, if this was the episode, like and credits rolled, we'd be like hit next it like skip intro, skip intro, right? Because here we have this guy who decides he wants to be friend with this other guy who is a danger to his father's throne, meaning it's a danger to his own throne. And Jonathan decides to give up his shot. Anybody? Okay, maybe not. Jonathan decides to give up his shot at the throne and saying, I'm gonna throw in with David. I'm gonna give up my chance at being a king so that this guy could be a king. So here's the question I think we have to ask about that is what is it that makes Jonathan decide to support David? What is it that makes Jonathan decide to throw in and unite himself with David even though it means giving up his own kingdom, even though it means giving up his chance At the throne. And I think this is an important question because it's a question, whether you realize it or not, that we kind of have to ask ourselves every day when we're deciding who or when or why we should unite ourselves with somebody else. It could be as small as asking the question of should I hang out with this person? which is stuff we deal, about, deal with a lot in our youth group. Our middle school and high school students are constantly addressing this situation. Should I hang out with this person or these people? It could be that small of a question like that, or it could be as big as, should I marry this person? Should I literally unite myself with this person? Or it could be, should I support this political candidate? Should I unite myself with this person? Should I unite myself to this company? Should I follow this job, this boss? Should I move to this other town? These are questions that we are asking ourselves all the time. And we see Jonathan make his decision up by deciding I'm gonna unite myself with David. So how does he do that? Now we don't get to read, I wish we did, we don't have like Jonathan's diary and we don't get to read in there like, dear diary, today a guy rolled in with Goliath's head and I was just taken, right? Like we don't get to read that. But I think we can kind of pick out some things that are going on. So the first thing I think Jonathan sees in David is that in David is the presence of the Lord. Jonathan sees the presence of the Lord with David. In 1 Samuel 18, 14, kind of the next page over, it says, David had success in all his undertaking for the Lord was with him. And we saw that moment way back, uh, first week of the series when Samuel anointed David and it talks about God's presence rushing upon David. But in that moment, God's presence also left Saul. Because Saul had done some things. Here he's the king, but he'd begun acting like a priest. And Samuel's like, what have you done? That's all this backstory. We don't need to get too weighed down by this stuff. But what we know is that David has the presence of God. And it seems that other people see it. Because back in chapter 16, when Saul has become really tormented because God's spirit has left him, because he's been a disobedient, it says that... Um, It says that Saul began looking for somebody to play the harp for him, to help him relax, right? He wants to just put some tunes on while he sleeps. And so one of the servants says, behold, I've seen a son, 1 Samuel 18, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who in skillful playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Other people are noticing that God's presence is with David. And I think Jonathan would have noticed it too. And that's just the thing is that people notice it when God's presence is with you. So how can we notice God's presence in someone else when we're asking the question, should I unite my life to this person? Well, I think their actions will prove it. I think the actions of a person proves whether or not God's presence is with them, whether or not they're following God in their life. So if you're trying to figure out like, who should I hang out with? What job should I pursue? Is God's presence with it? And you'll see that through the actions that they depict. Saul, on the other hand, His actions depicted a lack of God's presence. He gets increasingly irate and dangerous. Uh, He makes this vow at one point, back when Jonathan is fighting battles, where he's like, nobody should eat until my enemies are defeated. I don't know if you've ever, like, been in war or, like, a battle. Like, you got to, it's helpful to eat, right? But Saul says, none of our soldiers are going to eat. And then, of course, Jonathan eats. And then it's like, oh, do we have to kill Jonathan because he's eaten? Like, Saul has gotten extremely irrational. Later on, David's playing the harp. He chucks a spear at him. Not a great way to act if you're the king to the guy trying to help you chill out. Uh, And then later on, the same thing happens with Jonathan. So Saul shows that God is not with him, whereas we see in David that God is with him. And I think those actions become clear in the people around us of who God's presence is with and whose God's presence is not with based off of the things that they do. Also, I want to point out that David acts on the beliefs about God that Jonathan holds. The things that Jonathan believes about God, David acts on those beliefs. Because if you remember, back when Jonathan storms the other army, he says, we will find out nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And then we see David walk up to Goliath, and God saves the many by the few through David. And we also have to point out that it wasn't just Saul that didn't go up against Goliath. It wasn't just the king, but the prince also didn't go up against Goliath. So here we know that Jonathan believes God can save Israel through few, and yet for some reason in that moment, Jonathan doesn't get up to face Goliath. So I think it's all the more impressive to him when he sees somebody who holds his beliefs that God can rescue them by the few, but then he's willing to act upon those beliefs, which again is something important for us. It's important, sure, that the people we're uniting our lives with, that they share our beliefs, right? We could do a whole series on marriage and the importance of, you know, Christians trying to find people equal in faith to them as they marry, But it's not just important that we share the same beliefs. It's important that the person you unite your life with, that they act on those beliefs, right? Because it'd be one thing for me to say like, oh, well, I believe, you know, I believe that we should treat our neighbors well, that we should love everybody but then I cuss at the minimum wage worker at Walmart, right? Like I'm not really reflecting that. And that's kind of not who you wanna be like on a date with, like, oh, this guy just lost it to the waiter, like he said he's a Christian, he's not acting like, we want people that not only hold our beliefs and claim our same beliefs, but they're willing to act upon them because they're going to push us in these things, right? I talk about this type of thing with my students all the time. It's, it's one thing to find somebody who says they're a Christian and often you'll, ha- you'll have this, like somebody will be like, oh, I love Jesus, like you and I should date, And the next thing you know, they're like, hey, but can you send me some weird pictures? Their beliefs are not backed up by their actions. And those are not the kind of people that we should unite our lives to. Don't hear me saying like, don't talk to these people, shut them out of your life, cancel them. I'm not saying that. But when it comes to our intimate relationships, whether they be friendships or dating relationships, or even the company that we might work in, the the people in our family, we wanna be very careful of these things. And so these are the things that Jonathan sees in David, that he has God's presence They share the same beliefs. So not only that, he is willing to act on those beliefs. And so we see here that the actions of the person, not just their beliefs, will show us the presence of God in their lives. Then I believe that Jonathan sees David and compares it to Saul. And he sees that David is acting in humility and Saul is acting out of jealousy. If Jonathan is just sitting back and looking at the two people, and we can't get too much into this this week, but next week we're going to be all into this idea. As Jonathan looks between David and Saul, he sees who is really acting like a king. First Samuel 18, verse 7 after they're coming back from battle. So after, you know, David defeats Goliath, there's more battles with the Philistines and more battles that Israel has to fight. And here's probably where him and Jonathan are side by side, you know, in the trenches together. But it says, the women sang when they'd returned from these battles, the women sang to one another and they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David has struck his 10,000s. I don't know if that's the tune, but uh, that's what I'm going with. And it says that Saul was very angry and this this displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David 10,000s. And to me, they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So Saul, we see he's less successful than David in battle. He gets really jealous about it. He starts feeling really inferior to this little shepherd boy about this. And so Saul decides to kill David. He tries to have David killed in battle. So he arranges it where David would like do something just unrealistic in battle and Saul's expecting him to die in that battle, which is foreshadowing of some things we might see in David's life later if you keep coming. Uh, and then at one point again, I already mentioned, he threw his spear at David one time, he does it again. He chucks his spear at David twice. Which I'm like, fool me once, Saul, shame on you, but David, fool me twice. Then Saul chases David. So David flees for his life, Saul chases David. Again, we're gonna talk about that a ton next week. But in all of this, we never see David retaliate. We never see David go to Saul and be like, hey baby, I'm just trying to play some tunes on the harp for you, like chill out, man. Like David doesn't try to defend his case to Saul. He doesn't go up to Saul and say like, well, I heard you disobeyed God and that's why his spirit left you and now it is upon me, I have been anointed. He always treats Saul as the king because in those moments, Saul was the king. And I think that Jonathan sees this. And so I think, again, this is another question that we have to ask ourselves when we're pairing ourselves up with a friend or a, a relationship, whatever it is. We have to ask, am I doing this out of jealousy or am I doing this out of humility? Am I pairing myself with this person? Again, I see this a lot in our youth group. Like, am I hanging out with this group of friends because what it shows about me makes me more popular or what I get from being with them? Have I started dating this person because of what I think they can bring me in my life and the reputation or whatever else it might be with them? Am I pursuing this job, this career option? Am I moving to this certain town because I wanna be puffed up or because I'm following after God's will? Those are things, questions I think we have to ask ourselves. And Jonathan has been watching all of this and I believe that Jonathan is willing to give up his shot at the throne so that David could be king because he sees that. He sees that God's presence is in David. He sees that David is willing to act on his beliefs about God and he sees in David humility which are three things I believe that if we look for in any kind of relationship or friendship, we will not be led astray. And I know that is difficult to find because we're all humans, right? But here's what I wanna point out with this, is that those three things I just talked about that David demonstrates, that Jonathan witnesses, those three criteria I just talked about about the relationships that we should pursue, they are all seen in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. See what I did there? I'm trying to get you to think about like, oh, who should I be friends with? And they're like, oh, it's Jesus. Let's see what Jesus does. All over the New Testament, we see God's presence in Jesus, right? He performs these mighty miracles, feeding thousands, healing people, raising people from the dead. God's presence is with Jesus. And then we see Jesus doing all this, not just saying, here's what I believe. I believe that you're valuable. I believe that God loves you, but then he is willing to die for it. He is willing to say, here's how much God loves you. I'm giving up my life so that you can be with God. Jesus acts on his beliefs. And every step of the way, we never see Jesus walking around like the person that he is. We never see him walking around like the king that he is. He's born in a manger. He lives as a poor carpenter. And never once does he try and take the position of a throne. Jesus always acts in humility and never out of jealousy. And so again, as we look at the relationships we have in this earth, it's very important that we focus on the person that won't let us down. When it comes to deciding who we should unite our lives with, I can find no better person than that of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and that's something you just haven't thought a lot about, man, we would love to talk to you more. Maybe the person who you came to church with today would like to talk to you about this or we have our prayer room in the back where you can talk to people about what it means to be a friend of Jesus, what it means to unite your life with Jesus and become a Christian because he will never let you down. Humans, the other people in our lives, we're gonna let each other down, right? But Jesus will not. So Jonathan, Jonathan gives up his shot so that David can have the throne. Jonathan gives up his kingdom So that David can be the king. And in all this chaos, again, our idea is cutting through the chaos to see Jesus. In all this chaos, Jonathan sees in David the presence of God. And so it all comes down to this moment where David has had to flee the kingdom. Jonathan's like, you got to get out of here. Saul wants you dead. And then there's this question like, David, can can I come back? David's asking Jonathan, like, you think it's safe for me to come back? Can I do this? This is where I live. Like, I'm living out here, like on the run. Can I come back yet? And Jonathan's like, I'll talk to my dad, I will find out. And so Jonathan risks his life and him and David come up with this plan and they're like, hey, we'll go and I'll pretend that I'm doing target shooting over here. Jonathan says, and David, like you hide in the woods and I'll tell my servant if he fetches my bows in this way or my arrows that I miss, if he fetches them in that way, you'll know you have to go. But if I say this to him, you know that you can return, that it's safe for you. And so 1 Samuel 20 It says, as soon as the boy had gone, the kid that was fetching those arrows, David rose from beside the stone heap where he'd been hiding and he fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times to Jonathan. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. And so David goes on the run. And that's where our story will pick up next week. But we, we never get this great like ending for Saul and for Jonathan. We just see that Jonathan knew David was the guy to unite his life with. And the two were able to somehow establish this friendship, I think, shoulder to shoulder in war with one another. But beyond that, because of what they saw in each other, because the way they saw God working in one another's lives. Those are things we should seek out in our own relationships. Those are the things we find in Jesus. That just like Jonathan, Jesus was willing to give up his spot in heaven so that you could have yours. That just like Jonathan, he's willing to say like, I'm a king, I have this throne in heaven, but I'm gonna come down to your earth and be with you so that you can get to heaven for all of eternity. So again, the story of Jonathan just kind of goes on from there a little bit. And then we don't hear the details. We just know that in battle, Jonathan dies along with his father, Saul, the king. And so Jonathan and Saul, they die. And then David, after a time, he becomes king. And usually when this would happen, you know, people would expect the new king to go and eliminate all the line of the old king. So that there couldn't be somebody like a prince or third cousin or something who tries to come and be like, well, I actually am the one that is next in line for the throne. That's typically what kings did. And that's what people expected for David to do. But when David became king in 2 Samuel, the next book over, chapter 9, verse 3, here's what David says. It says, the king, David said, Is there not not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to God for him? And Ziba, who was one of the servants, Ziba, Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the backstory tells us that there's this baby, a baby of Jonathan's, Jonathan's son, and his name is Mephibosheth, which is the greatest name in all the Bible. And I challenge you, if you're having one of these quarantine babies, like Mephibosheth, it's great. Like, it's gonna be hard to yell when you're angry, like Mephibosheth, get over here. Like, it's gonna be hard, but it's such a great name. But that's beyond the point. This baby is born, he's the son of Jonathan. And when the servants begin to think like, oh, there's a new king, they think we have to hide Mephibosheth. We gotta take him and run. And as one of the servants is doing it with this little baby boy, they trip, they drop the baby and the baby is crippled in both of his feet for life. And so now we have this person, the son of Jonathan who cannot walk. There's a new king in town and David says, is there anybody left? And they're like, well, there's this this crippled guy. He was a son of Jonathan. And David finds him. And David grabs him in chapter nine. And he says, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear for I will show you kindness for your sake and the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? But Mephibosheth, we skip further ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. And now he's lame in both of his feet. We hear about this guy who does not deserve to be at the table of the king, but he gets a seat at the table of the king because of the friendship his father had with the king Mephibosheth is able to live like a king's son. Because of what Jonathan gave up for David, Jonathan gets an inheritance that he never even dreamed of. And it's the same for us. Even though we don't deserve to be at God's table, even though by all means we've been playing for the other team, we've been selfish, we're just like a crippled dog, we don't deserve to be at that table, but the king invites us to eat with him. The king gives up so much so that we be with him. And that's what we see in communion. In communion, we take the elements of the bread and the juice and we recognize the great cost at which Jesus came down from his heavenly kingdom, his heavenly throne, so that we could sit at his table. We see the presence of God, we see the humility of God, we see our King leave his throne so that we could get an eternal inheritance. Just as Jonathan gave up so much for David, Jesus gave up so much for us, his life on the cross. And there on the cross, his his body was broken, which we symbolize with the bread or the little wafer that you'll find today. His blood was poured out, which we symbolize with the juice that you'll find also. And there Jesus died and gave up his kingdom and gave up so much for us so that we could be with him. And so we recognize that in communion, that because of what Jesus did for us, we get a seat at his table. Because Jesus was willing to give up his throne, we could have an eternal inheritance. And so this morning, as the band's gonna come back up, I'm gonna invite you guys to find one of these stations around the room. And in this time, I just want you to reflect on what it is that Jesus has done for us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll move into a time of communion. You'll find the stations around the room. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that just like Jonathan, you were willing to give up your throne, your heavenly kingdom so that we could be united with you. And God, I pray for anybody this morning that has just never made the decision to unite their life to you, to become a follower of Christ, to become a Christian. I pray God that you would press in upon them, that you would whisper in their ear and draw them towards you and help us see God that you are the best friend we will ever find on this earth or in the next, that you gave up so much for us so that we could be with you. And because you did that, God, we have a seat at the king's table. And so this morning, as we approach your table and we take the elements of communion, I pray, God, that you would just help us to see all that you gave up. And let us be faced with the question, what are we willing to give up for you? It's in your name